0: According to a recent poll, 93% of Americans consider civility a problem in our country, and 69% believe incivility is a major problem. University of Maryland researchers suggest uncivil behavior is contagious and that rudeness breeds more rudeness. It's become commonplace for government officials to attack one another personally. For um, for similar officials to be heckled out, heckled at, in public, and even barred from eating establishments. Rules of politeness and civility have even overtaken, have been overtaken by rank, rancor, and anger. Rather than think before we speak, we act or react out of impulse and emotion. It's time to talk about self-control and rules that can govern our behavior. The English teacher Augie describes in the book Wonder, which is our summer read as one church, one book, reminded me of my own English teacher. His subject was life, values, and convictions, and English was merely a tool to examine and speak of them. He posed a challenge at the start of class with a sentence or two, which totally engaged us, much the same way Augie's teacher wrote P-R-E-C-E-P-T on the board. Precept, if you're not sure. (laughs) (laughs) And then he asked the class what it meant, and when they didn't answer, he wrote, rules about really important things like a motto a famous quote or a saying that motivates us the kind of rules or words that govern our behavior and determine life choices augie's teacher mr brown asked his class what are some really important things and students called out answers like homework family friends the environment bees seatbelts. He wrote each answer on the board, and when Mr. Brown pointed out that they had not said the most important thing of all, a kid suggested God as the answer. He went to Sunday school, of course, but that wasn't the answer the teacher had in mind. I'll let Augie's narration tell us the rest. Then he wrote who we are. What kind of person are you? Isn't that the most important thing of all? Isn't that the kind of question we should be asking ourselves all the time? He asked if anyone noticed the plaque at the entrance to the school. And then he told them it read, Know thyself. That's what you're here for. That's what you're here to do. Learn who you are. One kid cracked, I thought we were here to learn English. Oh, yeah, that too. Mr. Brown answered. Then in huge block letters that spread across the chalkboard, he wrote, Mr. Brown's September precept. When given the choice between being right or being kind, choose kind. From now on, at the beginning of every month, I'm going to write a new precept on the chalkboard, and you're going to write it down in your notebook. Then we're going to discuss that precept and what it means, and at the end of the month, you're going to write an essay about it, what it means to you, so that by the end of the year, you'll have your own list of precepts, including one you choose as your own personal precept. In this passage from Matthew, Jesus offers a few precepts for his followers to live by. Don't judge. So that you won't be judged. Don't give holy things to dogs. Or, in other words, don't be flip with what is sacred. Ask and you will receive, search and you will find, knock and the door will be open to you. In other words, trust God and ask for God's help. And the one referred to as the golden rule or the summation of all biblical teaching, treat people in the same way you want people to treat you. What if that was the starting point for how we behave, especially when we're mistreated or spoken to harshly? What if we followed Jesus' teaching and did as he did? Well, Jesus knows we're not wired that way. It's human nature to judge and retaliate whenever someone attacks us. This is why Jesus says, don't. Don't judge. Don't find fault or pick out what's wrong or deficient in someone else. Don't be impulsive that way or draw a comparison so that you might feel better about yourself. Don't judge because you're jealous or take comfort in someone else's shortcomings. One of the reasons I believe Jesus says this is he knows we're fallible and unqualified. In other words, we're unfit to judge. How can we possibly know another person's heart or assess what motive lies behind that person's actions? Besides, Jesus reminds us we too will be judged. That ought to be reason enough for us to be careful with how we treat others. After all, what goes around comes around. The size of the cup we use to pour out disapproval on someone is the same amount God will use on us. An older friend of mine used to share his precept, which he had learned and kept from childhood. There is so much good in the worst of us and so much bad in the best of us that it hardly behooves the rest of us. It hardly behooves any of us to talk about the rest of us. When we judge, we're playing God. Now, there's a difference between Judgment and critical thinking, Um, discerning something and making a critical assessment that's truthful, accurate, and even necessary. So a good example of that is the policy of separating children from their mothers, from their parents or their guardians. Everything in us says that's wrong. And yet, at the same time, there's a real problem at our borders that we must fix. But that's not the solution. So it's important to be critical of such things, but not to be disparaging and and hateful and condemning at the same time of of the people who espouse such a policy. How can we learn to speak of things that matter when we lose our voice with words of judgment and criticism. Jesus is talking about the kind of judgment that's destructive and demeaning and motivated by personal advantage, which is why he adds that picture parable that we can't miss. We exaggerate the minuscule faults of others and minimize the enormity of our own. I'm really good at finding fault that's really mine in someone else. It's so glaring. Why can't that person see it? And then all of a sudden, I'm looking in the mirror. Hello. If we choose to judge, Jesus invites us to start with ourselves. Better yet, he offers a different starting point altogether. Be as kind and generous toward someone else as you would want them to be toward you. Novelist Tommy Orange, whose book is getting great acclaim, There, There, went on the market this last month. He writes from a Native American perspective. In an interview, he said he no longer reads the comment section when an article is written about him online. And the reason is, he goes there thinking they might be speaking about his work or, or his writing. But what he finds is hateful, racist comments just aimed at him. A major news site discontinued their comment section for similar reasons. An outside observer summed it up this way. The rude, hateful, racist, judgmental comments... Far outweigh those who want to engage in some intelligent sideline conversation about the actual subject. Why are you gaining, what are you gaining from all these rabid comments other than proof that a sad slice of humanity preys on the weak while spreading their own hate? It's distressing to know that some of this free hate speech originates from self professed Christians. How can we? Compare that awful truth with the words I received from an InterVarsity regional director who included a portion of a letter she received from an atheist faculty member about writing about the InterVarsity member that serves on that campus. The staff member's name has been withheld and is just referred to as B., the, the professor writes, we can all admit the need for renewal. We live such shallow lives in so many ways. Certainly, we faculty, in moments of honesty, realize that a lot of what we do is pretty trivial, irrelevant, and even silly. We might not admit that to your university staff person, especially not if we're expecting you to preach to us. We've heard, or think we've heard, what you have to say, and we don't find that very persuasive. But if you can become some kind of renewing presence, we'll have to take that seriously. A Christian voice comes later, after you've earned some respect. That, I think, is part of what B has done here at my campus. We professors find ourselves saying, you know, our conversations are often deeper and richer when B contributes. Even when he's just around or brings visiting speakers, their presence on campus is bringing renewal. They're helping us with a deeper aspect of our own mission. How can we object to that? The respectful dialogue or conversation, so far as I can understand it, is part of an incarnational presence. Wow. He's using Christian language to describe something he doesn't believe in. You're here to help us better, to have better conversations. We feel renewed by honest, probing conversations, by genuine inquiry. We're academics. We live for that. B has persuaded me that he's not interested in preaching to me. And also that he's open to being changed by listening... And talking with us. The openness to change is part of the respect and the humility I spoke of. I think Christians can do this sort of thing because of their conviction that Christ will be with them in all things, including these situations. Wow. Wow. All because B was was not judgmental. B was not behaving in a way that... This philosophy professor thought all Christians behave, especially the ones that make it into the news. But the consistency and the respect and the honor connected to Jesus' precept of treating others the way we want to be treated is his teaching on trusting God by praying for what we need. In order to fulfill the golden rule, we must trust God completely. After all, the gospel reminds us we're not commanded to love out of our own nature or resources. We don't have it in us. First, we receive God's love and God's forgiveness, and then we're able to share God's love and that blessing of forgiveness and respect with others. The question is, will we trust God enough to pray and to love as Jesus did? Or will we do the opposite and trust ourselves to judge? May God help us make the right choices. Before we proceed, I...